Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Prologue to the Turn of the Screw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Cullum. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Prologue. The story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome as, on Christmas Eve, in an old house, a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case I may mention was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion, an appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it, waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately, but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Someone else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later, but that same evening, before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree in regard to Griffin's ghost, or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy at so tender an age adds a particular touch, but it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course, somebody exclaimed, that they give two turns, also that we want to hear about them. I can see Douglas there before the fire, to which he had got up to present his back, looking down at his interlocutor with his hands in his pockets. Nobody but me till now has ever heard. It's quite too horrible. This, naturally, was declared by several voices to give the thing the utmost price, and our friend, with quiet art, prepared his triumph by turning his eyes over the rest of us and going on. It's beyond everything. Nothing at all that I know touches it. For sheer terror, I remember asking. He seemed to say it was not so simple as that, to be really at a loss how to qualify it. He passed his hand over his eyes, made a little wincing grimace for dreadful, dreadfulness. Oh, how delicious, cried one of the women. 
He took no notice of her. He looked at me, but as if instead of me he saw what he spoke of. For general uncanny ugliness and horror and pain. Well then, I said, just sit right down and begin. He turned round to the fire, gave a kick to a log, watched it an instant. Then, as he faced us again, I can't begin, I shall have to send to town. There was a unanimous groan at this, and much reproach, after which, in his preoccupied way, he explained. The story's written. It's in a locked drawer. It has not been out for years. I could write to my man and enclose the keys. He could send down the packet as he finds it. It was to me in particular that he appeared to propound this, appeared almost to appeal for aid, not to hesitate. He had broken a thickness of ice, the formation of many a winter, had had his reasons for a long silence. The others resented postponement, but it was just his scruples that charmed me. I adjured him to write by the first post and to agree with us for an early hearing. Then I asked him if the experience in question had been his own. To this, his answer was prompt. Oh, thank God, no. And is the record yours? You took the thing down? Nothing but the impression. I took that. Here, he tapped his heart. I've never lost it. Then your manuscript is in old faded ink and in the most beautiful hand. He hung fire again, a woman's. She has been dead these twenty years. She sent me the pages in question before she died. They were all listening now, and of course there was somebody to be arch, or at any rate to draw the inference. But if he put the inference by without a smile, it was also without irritation. She was a most charming person, but she was ten years older than I. She was my sister's governess, he quietly said. She was the most agreeable woman I've ever known in her position. She would have been worthy of any whatever. It was long ago, and this episode was long before. I was at Trinity, and I found her at home on my coming down the second summer. I was much there that year. It was a beautiful one, and we had in her off hours, some strolls and talks in the garden. Talks in which she struck me as awfully clever and nice. Oh yes, don't grin. I liked her extremely, and I'm glad to this day to think she liked me too. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have told me. She had never told anyone. It wasn't simply that she said so, but that I knew she hadn't. I was sure I could see. You'll easily judge why when you hear. Because the thing had been such a scare, he continued to fix me. You'll easily judge, he repeated. You will. I fixed him too. I see. She was in love. He laughed for the first time. You are acute. Yes, she was in love. That is, she had been. That came out. She couldn't tell her story without its coming out. I saw it and she saw I saw it, but neither of us spoke of it. I remember the time and the place, the corner of the lawn, the shade of the great beeches, and the long, hot summer afternoon. It wasn't a scene for a shudder, but, oh, he quitted the fire and dropped back into his chair. 
You'll receive the packet Thursday morning, I inquired. Probably not till the second post. Well then, after dinner. You'll all meet me here. He looked us round again. Is anybody going? It was almost the tone of hope. Everybody will stay. I will, and I will, cried the ladies, whose departure had been fixed. Mrs. Griffin, however, expressed the need for a little more light. Who was it she was in love with? The story will tell. I took upon myself to reply. Oh, I can't wait for the story. The story won't tell, said Douglas, not in any literal vulgar way. More's the pity, then. That's the only way I ever understand. Won't you tell, Douglas? Somebody else inquired. He sprang to his feet again. Yes, tomorrow. Now I must go to bed. Good night. And quickly catching up a candlestick, he left us slightly bewildered. From our end of the great brown hall, we heard his step on the stair, whereupon Mrs. Griffin spoke. Well, if I don't know who she was in love with, I know who he was. She was ten years older, said her husband. Raison de plus. At that age? But it's rather nice, his long reticence. Forty years, Griffin put in. With this outbreak at last. The outbreak, I returned, will make a tremendous occasion of Thursday night, and everyone so agreed with me that, in the light of it, we lost all attention for everything else. The last story, however, incomplete, and like the mere opening of a serial, had been told. We handshook and candles stuck, as somebody said, and went to bed. I knew the next day that a letter containing the key had, by the first post, gone off to his London apartments, but in spite of, or perhaps just on account of, the eventual diffusion of this knowledge, we quite let him alone till after dinner. Till such an hour of the evening, in fact, as might best accord with the kind of emotion on which our hopes were fixed. Then he became as communicative as we could desire, and indeed gave us his best reason for being so. We had it from him again before the fire in the hall, as we had had our mild wonders of the previous night. It appeared that the narrative he had promised to read us really required for a proper intelligence a few words of prologue. Let me say here distinctly to have done with it that this narrative from an exact transcript of my own made much later is what I shall presently give. Poor Douglas, before his death, when it was in sight, committed to me the manuscript that reached him on the third of these days, and that, on the same spot, with immense effect, he began to read to our hushed little circle on the night of the fourth. The departing ladies, who had said they would stay, didn't, of course, thank heaven, stay. They departed in consequence of arrangements made, in a rage of curiosity, as they professed, produced by the touches with which he had already worked us up. But that only made his little final auditory more compact and select, kept it round the hearth, subject to a common thrill. The first of these touches conveyed that the written statement took up the tale at a point after it had, in a manner, begun. 
the fact to be in possession of was therefore that his old friend the youngest of several daughters of a poor country parson had at the age of twenty on taking service for the first time in the schoolroom came up to london in trepidation to answer in person an advertisement that had already placed her in brief correspondence with the advertiser this person proved on her presenting herself for judgment at a house in harley street that impressed her as vast and imposing this prospective patron proved a gentleman a bachelor in the prime of life such a figure as had never risen save in a dream or an old novel before a fluttered anxious girl out of a hampshire vicarage one could easily fix his type it never happily dies out he was handsome and bold and pleasant off-hand and gay and kind he struck her inevitably as gallant and splendid but what took her most of all and gave her the courage she afterward showed was that he put the whole thing to her as a kind of favour an obligation he should gratefully incur she conceived him as rich but as fearfully extravagant saw him all in a glow of high fashion of good looks of expensive habits of charming ways with women he had for his own town residence a big house filled with the spoils of travel and the trophies of the chase but it was to his country home an old family place in essex that he wished her immediately to proceed he had been left by the death of their parents in india guardian to a small nephew and a small niece children of a younger a military brother whom he had lost two years before these children were by the strangest of chances for a man in his position a lone man without the right sort of experience or a grain of patience very heavily on his hands it had all been a great worry and on his own part doubtless a series of blunders but he immensely pitied the poor chicks and had done all he could had in particular sent them down to his other house the proper place for them being of course the country and kept them there from the first with the best people he could find to look after them parting even with his own servants to wait on them and going down himself whenever he might to see how they were doing the awkward thing was that they had practically no other relations and that his own affairs took up all his time he had put them in possession of bly which was healthy and secure and had placed at the head of their little establishment but below stairs only an excellent woman mrs gross whom he was sure his visitor would like and who had formerly been made to his mother she was now housekeeper and was also acting for the time as superintendent to the little girl of whom without children of her own she was by good luck extremely fond there were plenty of people to help but of course the young lady who should go down as governess would be in supreme authority she would also have in holidays to look after the small boy who had been for a term at school young as he was to be sent but what else could be done and who as the holidays were about to begin would be back from one day to the other there had been for the two children at first a young lady whom they had had the misfortune to lose 
She had done for them quite beautifully. She was a most respectable person, till her death the great awkwardness of which had, precisely, left no alternative but the school for little miles. Mrs. Gross, since then, in the way of manners and things, had done as she could for Flora, and there were, further, a cook, a housemaid, a dairywoman, an old pony, an old groom, and an old gardener, all likewise thoroughly respectable. So far had Douglas presented his picture when someone put a question. And what did the former governess die of, of so much respectability? Our friend's answer was prompt. That will come out. I don't anticipate. Excuse me, I thought that was just what you are doing. In her successor's place, I suggested, I should have wished to learn if the office brought with it Necessary danger to life, Douglas completed my thought. She did wish to learn, and she did learn. You shall hear tomorrow what she learned. Meanwhile, of course, the prospect struck her as slightly grim. She was young, untried, nervous. It was a vision of serious duties and little company, of really great loneliness. She hesitated, took a couple of days to consult and consider, but the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure, and on a second interview she faced the music. She engaged, and Douglas, with this, made a pause that, for the benefit of the company, moved me to throw in, the moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. She succumbed to it. He got up and, as he had done the night before, went to the fire, gave a stir to a log with his foot, then stood a moment with his back to us. She saw him only twice. Yes, but that's just the beauty of her passion. A little to my surprise on this, Douglas turned round to me. It was the beauty of it. There were others, he went on, who hadn't succumbed. He told her frankly all his difficulty, that for several applicants the conditions had been prohibitive. They were, somehow, simply afraid. It sounded dull, it sounded strange, and all the more so because of his main condition. Which was? That she should never trouble him, but never, never neither appeal nor complain, nor write about anything, only meet all questions herself, receive all monies from his solicitor, take the whole thing over and let him alone. She promised to do this, and she mentioned to me that when, for a moment disburdened, delighted, he held her hand, thanking her for the sacrifice, she already felt rewarded. But was that all her reward? One of the ladies asked. She never saw him again. Oh, said the lady, which, as our friend immediately left us again, was the only other word of importance contributed to the subject till the next night, by the corner of the hearth in the best chair, he opened the faded red cover of a thin, old-fashioned, gilt-edged album. The whole thing took, indeed, more nights than one, but on the first occasion the same lady put another question. What is your title? I haven't one. Oh, I have, I said, but Douglas, 
without heeding me, had begun to read with a fine clearness that was like a rendering to the ear of the beauty of his author's hand. End of Prologue Chapter One of Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One. I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. After rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days, found myself doubtful again, felt indeed sure I had made a mistake. In this state of mind, I spent the long hours of bumping, swinging coach that carried me to the stopping place at which I was to be met by a vehicle from the house. This convenience, I was told, had been ordered, and I found, toward the close of the June afternoon, a commodious fly in waiting for me. Driving at that hour on a lovely day through a country to which the summer sweetness seemed to offer me a friendly welcome, my fortitude mounted afresh, and, as we turned into the avenue, encountered a reprieve that was probably but a proof of the point to which it had sunk. I suppose I had expected, or had dreaded, something so melancholy that what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember as a most pleasant impression the broad, clear front its open windows and fresh curtains, and the pair of maids looking out. I remember the lawn and the bright flowers and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel, and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. I had received in Harley Street a narrower notion of the place, and that, as I recalled it, made me think the proprietor, still more of a gentleman, suggested that what I was to enjoy might be something beyond his promise. I had no drop again till the next day, for I was carried triumphantly through the following hours by my introduction to the younger of my pupils. The little girl who accompanied Mrs. Gross appeared to me on the spot a creature so charming as to make it a great fortune to have to do with her. She was the most beautiful child I had ever seen, and I afterward wondered that my employer had not told me more of her. I slept little that night. I was too much excited, and this astonished me too, I recollect, remained with me, adding to my sense of the liberality with which I was treated. The large impressive room, one of the best in the house, the great state bed as I almost felt it, the full-figured draperies, the long glasses in which, for the first time, I could see myself from head to foot, all struck me like the extraordinary charm of my small charge as so many things thrown in. It was thrown in as well from the first moment that I should get on with Mrs. Gross in a relation over which, on my way in the coach, I fear I had rather brooded. The only thing indeed that in this early outlook might have made me shrink again 
was the clear circumstance of her being so glad to see me. I perceived within half an hour that she was so glad, stout, simple, plain, clean, wholesome woman, as to be positively on her guard against showing it too much. I wondered even then a little why she should wish not to show it, and that, with reflection, with suspicion, might, of course, have made me uneasy. But it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in a connection with anything so beatific as the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with the restlessness that, before morning, made me several times rise and wander about my room to take in the whole picture and prospect, to watch from my open window the faint summer dawn, to look at such portions of the rest of the house as I could catch, and to listen while, in the fading dusk, the first birds began to twitter, for the possible recurrence of a sound or two, less natural and not without, but within, that I had fancied, I heard. There had been a moment when I believed I recognised, faint and far, the cry of a child. There had been another when I found myself just consciously starting, as at the passage, before my door of a light footstep. But these fancies were not marked enough not to be thrown off, and it is only in the light, or the gloom, I should rather say, of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. To watch, teach, form, little Flora, would too evidently be the making of a happy and useful life. It had been agreed between us downstairs that after this first occasion I should have her as a matter of course at night, her small white bed being already arranged, to that end in my room. What I had undertaken was the whole care of her, and she had remained, just this last time, with Mrs. Gross, only as an effect of our consideration for my inevitable strangeness and her natural timidity. In spite of this timidity which the child herself, in the oddest way in the world, had been perfectly frank and brave about allowing it, without a sign of uncomfortable consciousness, with the deep, sweet serenity, indeed, of one of Raphael's holy infants, to be discussed, to be imputed to her, and to determine us, I feel quite sure she would presently like me. It was part of what I already liked Mrs. Gross herself for, the pleasure I could see her feel in my admiration and wonder as I sat at supper with four tall candles and with my pupil in a high chair and a bib brightly facing me, between them over bread and milk. There were naturally things in Flora's presence could pass between us, only as prodigious and gratified looks obscure and roundabout allusions. And the little boy, does he look like her? Is he too so very remarkable? One wouldn't flatter a child. Oh, miss, most remarkable. If you think well of this one, and she stood there with a plate in her hand, beaming at our companion, who looked from one of us to the other with placid, heavenly eyes that contained nothing to check us. Yes, if I do, you will be carried away by the little gentleman. Well, that, I think, is what I came for, to be carried away. 
I'm afraid, however, I remember feeling the impulse to add, I'm rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London. I can still see Mrs. Gross's broad face as she took this in. In Harley Street. In Harley Street. Well, miss, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. Oh, I've no pretension, I could laugh, to being the only one. My other pupil, at any rate, as I understand, comes back tomorrow. Not tomorrow, Friday, miss. He arrives, as you did, by the coach, under care of the guard, and is to be met by the same carriage. I forthwith expressed that the proper as well as the pleasant and friendly thing would be, therefore, that on the arrival of the public conveyance, I should be in waiting for him with his little sister, an idea in which Mrs. Gross concurred so heartily that I somehow took her manner as a kind of comforting pledge, never falsified, thank heaven, that we should on every question be quite at one. Oh, she was glad I was there. What I felt the next day was, I suppose, nothing that could be fairly called a reaction from the cheer of my arrival. It was probably at the most only a slight oppression produced by a fuller measure of the scale as I walked round them, gazed up at them, took them in of my new circumstances. They had, as it were, an extent and mass for which I had not been prepared and in the presence of which I found myself freshly a little scared as well as a little proud. Lessons in this agitation certainly suffered some delay. I reflected that my first duty was, by the gentlest arts I could contrive, to win the child into the sense of knowing me. I spent the day with her out of doors. I arranged with her to her great satisfaction that it should be she, she only, who might show me the place. She showed it step by step and room by room and secret by secret, with droll, delightful, childish talk about it, and with the result in half an hour of our becoming immense friends. Young as she was, I was struck throughout our little tour, with her confidence and courage, with the way, in empty chambers and dull corridors, on crooked staircases that made me pause, and even on the summit of an old, machicolated square tower that made me dizzy. Her morning music, her disposition to tell me so many more things than she asked, rang out and led me on. I have not seen Bly since the day I left it, and I dare say that to my older and more informed eyes it would now appear sufficiently contracted. But as my little conductress, with her hair of gold and her frock of blue, danced before me round corners and pattered down passages, I had the view of a castle of romance, inhabited by a rosy sprite, such a place as would somehow, for diversion of the young idea, take all colour out of storybooks and fairy tales. Wasn't it just a storybook over which I had fallen a doze in a dream? No, it was a big, ugly, antique, but convenient house, embodying a few features of a building still older, half replaced and half utilised, in which I had the fancy of our being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was, strangely, 
at the helm. End of chapter one. Chapter two of Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two. This came home to me when, two days later, I drove over with Flora to meet, as Mrs. Gross said, the little gentleman, and all the more for an incident that, presenting itself the second evening, had deeply disconcerted me. The first day had been, on the whole, as I have expressed, reassuring, but I was to see it wind up in keen apprehension. The post-bag that evening, it came late, contained a letter for me, which, however, in the hand of my employer, I found to be composed but of a few words, enclosing another, addressed to himself, with a seal still unbroken. This, I recognise, is from the headmaster, and the headmaster's an awful bore. Read him, please, deal with him, but mind you don't report. Not a word. I'm off. I broke the seal with a great effort, so great a one that I was a long time coming to it, took the unopened missive at last up to my room, and only attacked it just before going to bed. I had better have let it wait till morning, for it gave me a second sleepless night. With no counsel to take, the next day I was full of distress, and it finally got so the better of me that I determined to open myself at least to Mrs. Gross. What does it mean the child's dismissed his school? She gave me a look that I remarked at the moment, then visibly, with a quick blankness, seemed to try to take it back. But aren't they all sent home? Yes, but only for the holidays. Miles may never go back at all. Consciously, under my attention, she reddened. They won't take him? They absolutely decline. At this, she raised her eyes, which she had turned from me. I saw them fill with good tears. What has he done? I hesitated, then I judged best simply to hand her my letter, which, however, had the effect of making her, without taking it, simply put her hands behind her. She shook her head sadly. Such things are not for me, miss. My counsellor couldn't read. I winced at my mistake, which I attenuated as I could, and opened my letter again to repeat it to her. Then, faltering in the act and folding it up once more, I put it back in my pocket. Is it really bad? The tears were still in her eyes. Do the gentlemen say so? They go into no particulars. They simply express their regret that it should be impossible to keep him. That can have only one meaning. Mrs. Gross listened with dumb emotion. She forbore to ask me what this meaning might be, so that presently, to put the thing with some coherence, and with the mere aid of her presence to my own mind, I went on, that he's an injury to the others. And this, with one of the quick turns of simple folk, she suddenly flamed up. Master Miles? Him? An injury? There was such a flood of good faith in it that though I had not yet seen the child, my very fears made me jump to the absurdity of the idea. 
I found myself, to meet my friend the better, offering it on the spot, sarcastically, to his poor little innocent mates. It's too dreadful, cried Mrs. Gross, to say such cruel things. Why, he's scarce ten years old. Yes, yes, it would be incredible. She was evidently grateful for such a profession. See him, miss, first, then believe it. I felt forthwith a new impatience to see him. It was the beginning of a curiosity that, for all the next hours, was to deepen almost to pain. Mrs. Gross was aware, I could judge, of what she had produced in me, and she followed it up with assurance. You might as well believe it of the little lady. Bless her, she added the next moment. Look at her. I turned and saw that Flora, whom ten minutes before I had established in the schoolroom with a sheet of white paper, a pencil and a copy of nice round O's, now presented herself to view at the open door. She expressed in her little way an extraordinary detachment from disagreeable duties, looking to me, however, with a great childish light that seemed to offer it as a mere result of the affection she had conceived for my person, which had rendered necessary that she should follow me. I needed nothing more than this to feel the full force of Mrs. Gross's comparison, and catching my pupil in my arms, covered her with kisses, in which there was a sob of atonement. Nonetheless, the rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as, toward evening, I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon, as a declaration that you've never known him to be bad. She threw back her head. She had clearly by this time and very honestly adopted an attitude. Oh, never known him. I don't pretend that. I was upset again. Then you have known him. Yes, indeed, miss. Thank God. On reflection, I accepted this. You mean that a boy who never is, is no boy for me? I held her tighter. You like them with the spirit to be naughty. Then keeping pace with her answer, so do I, I eagerly brought out, but not to the degree to contaminate. To contaminate? My big word left her at a loss. I explained it. To corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in, but it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humour that with a laugh, a little silly, doubtless to match her own, I gave way for the first time to the apprehension of ridicule. But the next day, as the hour for my drive approached, I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess? She was also young and pretty, almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Ah, then I hope her youth and her beauty helped her, I recollect throwing off. He seems to like us, young and pretty. Oh, he did, Mrs. Gross assented. It was the way he liked everyone. She had no sooner spoken, indeed, than she caught herself up. I mean, that's his way, the master's. I was struck. 
but of whom did you speak first? She looked blank, but she coloured. Why, of him? Of the master? Of who else? There was so obviously no one else that the next moment I had lost my impression of her having accidentally said more than she meant, and I merely asked what I wanted to know. Did she see anything in the boy? That wasn't right. She never told me. I had a scruple, but I overcame it. Was she careful? Particular? Mrs. Gross appeared to try to be conscientious. About some things, yes, but not about all. Again, she considered, well, miss, she's gone. I won't tell tales. I quite understand your feeling. I hastened to reply, but I thought it, after an instant, not opposed to this concession to pursue. Did she die here? No, she went off. I don't know what there was in this brevity of Mrs. Gross's that struck me as ambiguous. Went off to die? Mrs. Gross looked straight out of the window, but I felt that, hypothetically, I had a right to know what young persons engaged for Bly were expected to do. She was taken ill, you mean, and went home. She was not taken ill so far as appeared in this house. She left it at the end of the year to go home, as she said, for a short holiday, to which the time she had put in had certainly given her a right. We had then a young woman, a nursemaid, who had stayed on and who was a good girl and clever, and she took the children altogether for the interval. But our young lady never came back and at the very moment I was expecting her, I heard from the master that she was dead. I turned this over. But of what? He never told me, but please, miss, said Mrs. Gross, I must get to my work. End of chapter two. Chapter three of Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Her thus turning her back on me was fortunately not, for my just preoccupations, a snub that could check the growth of our mutual esteem. We met, after I had brought home little Miles, more intimately than ever on the ground of my stupefaction, my general emotion, so monstrous was I then ready to pounce it, that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene, and I felt, as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him on the instant without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity, in which I had, from the very first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child, his indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered, so far, that is, as I was not 
outraged by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Gross, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. You mean the cruel charge? It doesn't live an instant, my dear woman. Look at him. She smiled at my pretension to have discovered his charm. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say then? She immediately added. In answer to the letter, I had made up my mind. Nothing. And to his uncle? I was incisive. Nothing. And to the boy himself? I was wonderful. Nothing. She gave with her apron a great wipe to her mouth. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out, I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom? To kiss me? No. I took the good creature in my arms, and after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. This, at all events, was for the time, a time so full that, as I recall the way it went, it reminds me of all the art I now need to make it a little distinct. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken with my companion to see it out, and I was under a charm, apparently, that could smooth away the extent and the far and difficult connections of such an effort. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer. We all had a theory that he was to have, but I now feel that for weeks the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first, certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small mothered life, learned to be amused, and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time in a manner that I had known space and air and freedom, all the music of summer and all the mystery of nature, and then there was consideration, and consideration was sweet. Oh, it was a trap, not designed, but deep to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet, as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood, for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that, in my fancy, the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, 
a really royal extension of the garden and the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked most, and I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather, I should say, the day lingered, and the last calls of the last birds sounded in a flushed sky from the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy, almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless perhaps, also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, to the person to whose pressure I had responded. What I was doing was what he had earnestly hoped and directly asked of me, and that I could after all do it proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the faith that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable to offer affront to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump, one afternoon, in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away, and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings, was that it would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know, and the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it and the kind light of it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn, and at the very top of the tower to which, on that first morning, little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, square, incongruous, crenellated structures, that were distinguished for some reason, though I could see little difference as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure, indeed, by not being wholly disengaged, nor of a height too pretentious, 
dating in their gingerbread antiquity from a romantic revival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, for we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk by the grandeur of their actual battlements, yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me this figure in the clear twilight, I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were, sharply, the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, and the figure that faced me was, a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me at least, making my statement here with a deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again as I write the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance, quite long enough for me to ask myself, with intensity, who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is, afterward, I know, with regard to certain matters, the question of how long they have lasted. Well, this matter of mine, think what you will of it, lasted while I caught at a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better that I could see in their having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom, as I remember, in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. 
We were too far apart to call each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us, breaking the hush, would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place, passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me, he turned away. That was all I knew. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 It was not that I didn't wait on this occasion for more, for I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken. Was there a secret at Bly, a mystery of Udolpho, or an insane, an unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long, in a confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained where I had had my collision. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. Agitation in the interval certainly had held me and driven me, for I must, in circling about the place, have walked three miles, but I was to be, later on, so much more overwhelmed that this mere dawn of alarm was a comparatively human chill. The most singular part of it, in fact, singular as the rest had been, was the part I became, in the hall, aware of in meeting Mrs. Gross. This picture comes back to me in the general train, the impression, as I received it on my return, of the wide white panelled space, bright in the lamplight, and with its portraits and red carpet, and of the good surprised look of my friend, which immediately told me she had missed me. It came to me straightway, under her contact, that, with plain heartiness, mere relieved anxiety at my appearance, she knew nothing whatever that could bear upon the incident I had there ready for her. I had not suspected in advance that her comfortable face would pull me up, and I somehow measured the importance of what I had seen by my thus finding myself hesitate to mention it. Scarce anything in the whole history seems to me so odd as this fact, that my real beginning of fear was one, as I may say, with the instinct of sparing my companion. On the spot, accordingly, in the pleasant hall and with her eyes on me, I, for a reason that I couldn't then have phrased, achieved an inward resolution, offered a vague pretext for my lateness, and, with the plea of the beauty of the night, and of the heavy dew and wet feet, went as soon as possible to my room. Here it was, another affair. Here, for many days after, it was a queer affair enough. 
there were hours from day to day or at least there were moments snatched even from clear duties that i had to shut myself up to think it was not so much yet that i was more nervous than i could bear to be as that i was remarkably afraid of becoming so for the truth i had now to turn over was simply and clearly the truth that i could arrive at no account whatever of the visitor with whom i had been so inexplicably and yet as it seemed to me so intimately concerned it took little time to see that i could sound without forms of inquiry and without exciting remark any domestic complications the shock i had suffered must have sharpened all my senses i felt sure at the end of three days and as the result of mere closer attention that i had not been practised upon by the servants nor made the object of any gain of whatever it was that i knew nothing was known around me there was but one sane inference someone had taken a liberty rather gross that was what repeatedly i dipped into my room and locked the door to say to myself we had been collectively subject to an intrusion some unscrupulous traveller curious in old houses had made his way in unobserved enjoyed the prospect from the best point of view and then stolen out as he came if he had given me such a bold hard stare there was but a part of his indiscretion the good thing after all was that we should surely see no more of him this was not so good a thing i admit as not to leave me to judge that what essentially made nothing else much signify was simply my charming work my charming work was just my life with miles and flora and through nothing could i so like it as through feeling that i could throw myself into it in trouble the attraction of my small charges was a constant joy leading me to wonder afresh at the vanity of my original fears the distaste i had begun by entertaining for the probable grey prose of my office there was to be no grey prose it appeared and no long grind so how could work not be charming that presented itself as daily beauty it was all the romance of the nursery and the poetry of the schoolroom i don't mean by this of course that we studied only fiction and verse i mean i can express no otherwise the sort of interest my companions inspired how can i describe that except by saying that instead of growing used to them and it's a marvel for a governess i call the sisterhood to witness i made constant fresh discoveries there was one direction assuredly in which these discoveries stopped deep obscurity continued to cover the region of the boy's conduct at school it had been promptly given me i have noted to face that mystery without a pang perhaps even it would be nearer the truth to say that without a word he himself had cleared it up he had made the whole charge absurd my conclusion bloomed there with the real rose flush of his innocence he was only too fine and fair for the little horrid unclean school world and he had paid a price for it i reflected acutely that the sense of such differences such superiorities of quality always on the part of the majority which could include even stupid sordid headmasters 
turned infallibly to the vindictive. Both the children had a gentleness. It was their only fault, and it never made miles a muff, but kept them, how shall I express it, almost impersonal and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like the cherubs of the anecdote, who had, morally at any rate, nothing to whack. I remember feeling with Miles in especial as if he had had, as it were, no history. We expect of a small child a scant one, but there was in this beautiful little boy something extraordinarily sensitive, yet extraordinarily happy, that more than in any creature of his age I have seen struck me as beginning anew each day. He had never for a second suffered. I took this as a direct disproof of his having really been chastised. If he had been wicked, he would have caught it, and I should have caught it by the rebound. I should have found the trace. I found nothing at all, and he was, therefore, an angel. He never spoke of his school, never mentioned a comrade or a master, and I, for my part, was quite too much disgusted to allude to them. Of course I was under the spell, and the wonderful part is that, even at the time, I perfectly knew I was. But I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home, where things were not going well. But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. There was a Sunday to get on, when it rained with such force, and for so many hours there could be no procession to church in consequence of which, as the day declined, I had arranged with Mrs. Gross that, should the evening show improvement, we would attend together the late service. The rain happily stopped, and I prepared for our walk, which, through the park and by the good road to the village, would be a matter of twenty minutes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches, and that had received them with a publicity perhaps not edifying while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays, by exception, in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. The day was grey enough, but the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognise on a chair near the window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window and looking straight in. One step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there. The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. He appeared thus again with, I won't say greater distinctness, for that was impossible, but with a nearness that represented a forward stride in our intercourse and made me, as I met him, catch my breath and turn cold. He was the same, he was the same, and seen this time as he had been seen before from the waist up, the window. Though the dining room was on the ground floor, not going down to the terrace on which he stood, 
His face was close to the glass, yet the effect of this better view was, strangely, only to show me how intense the former had been. He remained but a few seconds, long enough to convince me he also saw and recognised, but it was as if I had been looking at him for years and had known him always. Something, however, happened this time that had not happened before. His stare into my face through the glass and across the room was as deep and hard as then, but it quitted me for a moment during which I could still watch it, see it fixed successively several other things. On the spot there came to me the added shock of a certitude that it was not for me he had come there. He had come for someone else. The flash of this knowledge, for it was knowledge in the midst of dread, produced in me the most extraordinary effect, started as I stood there, a sudden vibration of duty and courage. I say courage because I was beyond all doubt, already far gone. I bounded straight out of the door again, reached that of the house, got in an instant upon the drive, and passing along the terrace as fast as I could rush, turned a corner and came full in sight. But it was in sight of nothing now. My visitor had vanished. I stopped. I almost dropped with the real relief of this, but I took in the whole scene and I gave him time to reappear. I call it time, but how long was it? I can't speak to the purpose today of the duration of these things. That kind of treasure must have left me. They couldn't have lasted as they actually appeared to me to last. The terrace and the whole place, the lawn and the garden beyond it, all I could see of the park were empty with a great emptiness. There were shrubberies and big trees, but I remember the clear assurance I felt that none of them concealed him. He was there, or was not there, not there if I didn't see him. I got hold of this then, instinctively, instead of returning as I had come, went to the window. It was confusedly present to me that I ought to place myself where he had stood. I did so. I applied my face to the pane and looked, as he had looked, into the room. As if at this moment, to show me exactly what his range had been, Mrs. Gross, as I had done for himself just before, came in from the hall. With this I had the full image of a repetition of what had already occurred. She saw me as I had seen my own visitant. She pulled up short as I had done. I gave her something of the shock that I had received. She turned white, and this made me ask myself if I had blanched as much. She stared in short and retreated on just my lines, and I knew she had then passed out and come round to me and that I should presently meet her. I remained where I was, and while I waited I thought of more things than one. But there's only one I take space to mention. I wondered why she should be scared. End of chapter four. Chapter five of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five. Oh, she let me know as soon as, round the corner of the house, she loomed again into view. 
What in the name of goodness is the matter? She was now flushed and out of breath. I said nothing till she came quite near. With me? I must have made a wonderful face. Do I show it? You're as white as a sheet. You look awful. I considered I could meet on this without scruple any innocence. My need to respect the bloom of Mrs. Gross's had dropped without a rustle from my shoulders, and if I wavered for the instant, it was not with what I kept back. I put out my hand to her and she took it. I held her hard a little, liking to feel her close to me. There was a kind of support in the shy heave of her surprise. You came for me for church, of course, but I can't go. Has anything happened? Yes, you must know now. Did I look very queer? Through this window? Dreadful. Well, I said, I've been frightened. Mrs. Gross's eyes expressed plainly that she had no wish to be, yet also that she knew too well her place not to be ready to share with me any marked inconvenience. Oh, it was quite settled that she must share. Just what you saw from the dining room a minute ago was the effect of that. What I saw just before was much worse. Her hand tightened. What was it? An extraordinary man looking in. What extraordinary man? I haven't the least idea. Mrs. Gross gazed round us in vain. Then where is he gone? I know still less. Have you seen him before? Yes, once on the old tower. She could only look at me harder. Do you mean he's a stranger? Oh, very much. Yet you didn't tell me. No, for reasons, but now that you've guessed. Mrs. Gross's round eyes encountered this charge. Ah, I haven't guessed, she said very simply. How can I if you don't imagine? I don't, in the very least. You've seen him nowhere but on the tower, and on this spot just now. Mrs. Gross looked round again. What was he doing on the tower? Only standing there and looking down at me. She thought a minute. Was he a gentleman? I found I had no need to think. No, she gazed in deeper wonder. No. Then nobody about the place? Nobody from the village? Nobody, nobody. I didn't tell you, but I made sure. She breathed a vague relief. This was, oddly, so much to the good. It only went indeed a little way. But if he isn't a gentleman, what is he? He's a horror. A horror? He's, God help me if I don't know what he is. Mrs. Gross looked round once more. She fixed her eyes on the duskier distance. Then, pulling herself together, turned to me with abrupt inconsequence. It's time we should be at church. Oh, I'm not fit for church. Won't it do you good? It won't do them. I nodded at the house. The children. I can't leave them now. You're afraid. I spoke boldly. I'm afraid of him. Mrs. Gross's large face showed me at this for the first time the faraway faint glimmer of a consciousness more acute. I somehow made out in it the delayed dawn of an idea I myself had not given her, and that was, as yet, 
quite obscure to me. It comes back to me that I thought instantly of this as something I could get from her, and I felt it to be connected with the desire she presently showed to know more. When was it? On the tower. About the middle of the month at this same hour. Almost at dark, said Mrs. Gross. Ah, oh no, not nearly. I saw him as I see you. Then how did he get in? And how did he get out? I laughed. I had no opportunity to ask him. This evening, you see, I pursued, he has not been able to get in. He only peeps. I hope it will be confined to that. She had now let go my hand. She turned away a little. I waited an instant, then I brought out. Go to church. Goodbye. I must watch. Slowly she faced me again. Do you fear for them? We met in another long look. Don't you? Instead of answering, she came nearer to the window and for a minute applied her face to the glass. You see how he could see. I meanwhile went on. She didn't move. How long was he here? Till I came out. I came to meet him. Mrs. Gross at last turned round, and there was still more in her face. I couldn't have come out. Neither could I. I laughed again, but I did come. I have my duty. So have I mine, she replied, after which she added, What is he like? I've been dying to tell you, but he's like nobody. Nobody, she echoed. He has no hat. Then seeing in her face that she already, in this, with a deeper dismay, found a touch of picture, I quickly added stroke to stroke. He has red hair, very red, close curling, and a pale face, long in shape, with straight good features and little, rather queer whiskers that are as red as his hair. His eyebrows are somehow darker, they look particularly arched, and as if they might move a good deal. His eyes are sharp, strange, awfully, but I only know clearly that they're rather small and very fixed. His mouth's wide and his lips are thin, and except for his little whiskers, he's quite clean-shaven. He gives me a sort of sense of looking like an actor. An actor? It was impossible to resemble one less, at least, than Mrs. Gross at that moment. I've never seen one, but so I suppose them. He's tall, active, erect, I contained, but never, no, never a gentleman. My companion's face had blanched as I went on. Her round eyes started and her mild mouth gaped. A gentleman, she gasped, confounded, stupefied. A gentleman, he? You know him then? She visibly tried to hold herself. But he is handsome. I saw the way to help her. Remarkably. And dressed? In somebody's clothes. They're smart, but they're not his own. She broke into a breathless, affirmative groan. They're the masters. I caught it up. You do know him. She faltered but a second. Quint, she cried. Quint? Peter Quint, his own man, his valet, when he was here. When the master was? 
gaping still but meeting me she pieced it all together he never wore his hat but he did wear well there was waistcoats missed they were both here last year then the master went and quint was alone i followed but halting a little alone alone with us then as from a deeper depth in charge she added and what became of him she hung fire so long that i was still more mystified he went too she brought out at last went where her expression at this became extraordinary god knows where he died died i almost shrieked she seemed fairly to square herself plant herself more firmly to utter the wonder of it yes mr quint is dead end of chapter five chapter six of the turn of the screw by henry james this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter six it took of course more than that particular passage to place us together in presence of what we now had to live with as we could my dreadful liability to impressions of the order so vividly exemplified and my companion's knowledge henceforth a knowledge half consternation and half compassion of that liability there had been this evening after the revelation left me for an hour so prostrate there had been for either of us no attendance on any service but a little service of tears and vows of prayers and promises a climax to the series of mutual challenges and pledges that had straightway ensued on our retreating together to the schoolroom and shutting ourselves up there to have everything out the result of our having everything out was simply to reduce our situation to the last rigour of its elements she herself had seen nothing not the shadow of a shadow and nobody in the house but the governess was in the governess's plight yet she accepted without directly impugning my sanity the truth as i gave it to her and ended by showing me on this ground an awe-stricken tenderness an expression of the sense of my more than questionable privilege of which the very breath has remained with me as that of the sweetest of human charities what was settled between us accordingly that night was that we thought we might bear things together and i was not even sure that in spite of her exemption it was she who had the best of the burden i knew at this hour i think as well as i knew later what i was capable of meeting to shelter my pupils but it took me some time to be wholly sure of what my honest ally was prepared for to keep terms with so compromising a contract i was queer company enough quite as queer as the company i received but as i trace over what we went through i see how much common ground we must have found in the one idea that by good fortune could steady us it was the idea the second movement that led me straight out as i may say of the inner chamber of my dread i could take the air in the court at least and there mrs gross could join me perfectly can i recall now the particular way strength came to me before we separated for the night 
we had gone over and over every feature of what I had seen. He was looking for someone else, you say, someone who was not you. He was looking for little miles. A portentous clearness now possessed me. That's whom he was looking for. But how do you know? I know, I know, I know. My exultation grew. And you know, my dear. She didn't deny this, but I required, I felt, not even so much telling as that. She resumed in a moment at any rate. What if he should see him? Little Miles? That's what he wants. She looked immensely scared again. The child? Heaven forbid the man. He wants to appear to them. That he might was an awful conception, and yet somehow I could keep it at bay, which, moreover, as we lingered there, was what I succeeded in practically proving. I had an absolute certainty that I should see again what I had already seen, but something within me said that by offering myself bravely as the sole subject of such experience, by accepting, by inviting, by surmounting it all, I should serve as an expiatory victim and guard the tranquillity of my companions. The children, in especial, I should thus fence about and absolutely save. I recall one of the last things I said that night to Mrs. Gross. It does strike me that my pupils have never mentioned. She looked at me hard as I musingly pulled up. His having been here and the time they were with him. The time they were with him and his name, his presence, his history, in any way. Oh, the little lady doesn't remember. She never heard or knew. The circumstances of his death, I thought with some intensity. Perhaps not, but Miles would remember. Miles would know. Ah, don't try him, broke from Mrs. Gross. I returned her the look she had given me. Don't be afraid, I continued to think. It is rather odd that he has never spoken of him. Never, by the least allusion. And you tell me they were great friends? Oh, it wasn't him, Mrs. Gross with emphasis declared. It was Quint's own fancy. To play with him, I mean, to spoil him. She paused a moment. Then she added, Quint was much too free. This gave me, straight from my vision of his face, such a face, a sudden sickness of disgust, too free with my boy, too free with everyone. I forbore for the moment to analyse this description further than by the reflection that a part of it applied to several of the members of the household, of the half-dozen maids and men who were still of our small colony. But there was everything for our apprehension in the lucky fact that no discomfortable legend, no perturbation of scullions had ever, within anyone's memory, attached to the kind old place. It had neither bad name nor ill fame, and Mrs. Gross, most apparently, only desired to cling to me and to quake in silence. I even put her, the very last thing of all, to the test, it was when, at midnight, she had her hand on the schoolroom door to take leave. I have it from you, then, for it's of great importance, that he was definitely and admittedly bad. Oh, not admittedly. I knew it. 
but the master didn't. And you never told him? Well, he didn't like tail-bearing. He hated complaints. He was terribly short with anything of that kind. And if people were all right to him, he wouldn't be bothered with more. This squared well enough with my impressions of him. He was not a trouble-loving gentleman, nor so very particular, perhaps, about some of the company he kept. All the same, I pressed my interlocutress. I promise you, I would have told. She felt my discrimination. I dare say I was wrong, but really, I was afraid. Afraid of what? Of things that man could do. Quint was so clever. He was so deep. I took this in still more than probably I showed. You weren't afraid of anything else, not of his effect? His effect, she repeated with a face of anguish and waiting while I faltered. On innocent little precious lives, they were in your charge. No, they were not in mine, she roundly and distressfully returned. The master believed in him and placed him here because he was supposed not to be well and the country air so good for him. So he had everything to say. Yes, she let me have it, even about them. Them, that creature. I had to smother a kind of howl. And you could bear it? No, I couldn't, and I can't now. And the poor woman burst into tears. A rigid control from the next day was, as I have said, to follow them. Yet how often and how passionately, for a week, we came back together to the subject. Much as we had discussed it that Sunday night, I was, in the immediate later hours, in a special, for it may be imagined whether I slept, still haunted with the shadow of something she had not told me. I myself had kept back nothing, but there was a word Mrs. Gross had kept back. I was sure, moreover, by morning, that this was not from a failure of frankness, but because on every side there were fears. It seems to me, indeed, in retrospect, that by the time the morrow's sun was high, I had restlessly read into the fact before us almost all the meaning they were to receive from subsequent and more cruel occurrences. What they gave me above all was just the sinister figure of the living man. The dead one would keep a while, and of the months he had continuously passed at Bly, which, added up, made a formidable stretch. The limit of this evil time had arrived only when on the dawn of a winter's morning Peter Quint was found by a labourer going to early work, stone dead on the road from the village, a catastrophe explained, superficially at least, by a visible wound to his head, such a wound as might have been produced and, as on the final evidence, had been by a fatal slip, in the dark and after leaving the public house, on the steepish icy slope, a wrong path altogether at the bottom of which he lay. The icy slope, the turn mistaken at night, and in liquor accounted for much. Practically, in the end and after the inquest and boundless chatter, for everything. But there had been matters in his life, strange passages and perils, secret disorders, vices more than suspected, that would have accounted for a good deal more. I scarce know how to put my story into words that shall be a credible picture of my state of mind. 
but I was in these days literally able to find a joy in the extraordinary flight of heroism the occasion demanded of me. I now saw that I had been asked for a service admirable and difficult, and there would be a greatness in letting it be seen, oh, in the right quarter, that I could succeed where many another girl might have failed. It was an immense help to me, I confess I rather applaud myself as I look back, that I saw my service so strongly and so simply. I was there to protect and defend the little creatures in the world, the most bereaved and the most lovable, the appeal of whose helplessness had suddenly become only too explicit, a deep, constant ache of one's own committed heart. We were cut off, really, together. We were united in our danger. They had nothing but me and I. Well, I had them. It was, in short, a magnificent chance. This chance presented itself to me in an image richly material. I was a screen. I was to stand before them. The more I saw, the less they would. I began to watch them in a stifled suspense, a disguised excitement that might well, had it continued too long, have turned to something like madness. What saved me, as I now see, was that it turned to something else altogether. It didn't last as suspense. It was superseded by horrible proofs. Proofs, I say, yes, from the moment I really took hold. This moment dated from an afternoon hour that I happened to spend in the grounds with the younger of my pupils alone. We had left Miles indoors on the red cushion of a deep window seat. He had wished to finish a book, and I had been glad to encourage a purpose so laudable in a young man whose only defect was an occasional excess of the restless. His sister, on the contrary, had been alert to come out, and I strolled with her half an hour, seeking the shade, for the sun was still high and the day exceptionally warm. I was aware afresh with her as we went, of how, like her brother, she contrived, it was the charming thing in both children, to let me alone without appearing to drop me and to accompany me without appearing to surround. They were never importunate and yet never listless. My attention to them all really went to seeing them amuse themselves immensely without me. This was a spectacle they seemed actively to prepare, and that engaged me as an active admirer. I walked in a world of their invention. They had no occasion whatever to draw upon mine, so that my time was taken only with being, for them, some remarkable person or thing that the game of the moment required and that was merely, thanks to my superior, my exalted stamp, a happy and highly distinguished sinecure. I forget what I was on the present occasion. I only remember that I was something very important and very quiet and that Flora was playing very hard. We were on the edge of the lake and as we had lately begun geography, the lake was the sea of Azov. Suddenly, in these circumstances, I became aware that, on the other side of the Sea of Azov, we had an interested spectator. The way this knowledge gathered in me was the strangest thing in the world, the strangest, that is, except the very much stranger in which it quickly merged itself. I had sat down with a piece of work, for I was something or other that could sit 
on the old stone bench which overlooked the pond, and in this position I began to take in with certitude, and yet without direct vision, the presence at a distance of a third person. The old trees, the thick shrubbery, made a great and pleasant shade, but it was all suffused with the brightness of the hot still hour. There was no ambiguity in anything, none whatever, at least in the conviction I, from one moment to another, found myself forming as to what I should see straight before me and across the lake as a consequence of raising my eyes. They were attached at this juncture to the stitching in which I was engaged, and I can feel once more the spasm of my effort not to move them till I should have steadied myself as to be able to make up my mind what to do. There was an alien object in view, a figure whose right of presence I instantly, passionately questioned. I recollect counting over perfectly the possibilities, reminding myself that nothing was more natural, for instance, than the appearance of one of the men about the place, or even of a messenger, a postman, or a tradesman's boy from the village. That reminder had as little effect on my practical certitude as I was conscious, still even without looking, of its having upon the character and attitude of our visitor. Nothing was more natural than that these things should be the other things that they absolutely were not. Of the positive identity of the apparition, I would assure myself, as soon as the small clock of my courage should have ticked out of the right second, of the positive identity of the apparition, I would assure myself, as soon as the small clock of my courage should have ticked out the right second, meanwhile with an effort that was already sharp enough, I transferred my eyes straight to little Flora, who, at the moment, was about ten yards away. My heart had stood still for an instant with the wonder and terror of the question, whether she too would see, and I held my breath while I waited, for what a cry from her, what some sudden innocent sign either of interest or of alarm would tell me. I waited, but nothing came. Then in the first place, and there is something more dire in this I feel, than in anything I have to relate. I was determined by a sense that, within a minute, all sounds from her had previously dropped, and in the second, by the circumstance that, also within the minute, she had in her play turned her back to the water. This was her attitude when I at last looked at her, looked with the confirmed conviction that we were still together under direct personal notice. She had picked up a small flat piece of wood which happened to have in it a little hole that had evidently suggested to her the idea of sticking in another fragment that might figure as a mast and make the thing a boat. This second morsel, as I watched her, she was very markedly and intently attempting to tighten it in its place. My apprehension of what she was doing sustained me so that after some seconds I felt I was ready for more. Then I again shifted my eyes. I faced what I had to face. End of chapter 6 Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.